This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover of Shank Annis Tepper Campbell. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. Today, we are going to be discussing distressed debt buying. It is a multi-billion dollar industry that you don't read much about or hear much about and it's difficult to find information on. But before we get into that, and we have, uh, we're gonna have John Winnick of Clark Street Capital come on and he is a, uh, let's call it a broker of distressed debt, but he provides a platform where banks can sell debt to purchasers. Before we get into that, a little bit of house cleaning and then I'll set the stage on what the distressed debt buying industry entails, and then we'll uh, we'll get into the interview. If listeners are interested in a certain topic or you have questions, feel free to get in touch with us by contacting us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com, or please visit our website, realestatebreakfast.com. Please feel free to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, and tell a friend. We should also mention that this is a podcast that is brought to us by SATC Solution Center, L3C, which is the Education and Development Division of the law firm Shank Annis Tepper Campbell. Shank Annis Tepper Campbell creates business solutions for entrepreneurs and privately held companies. We partner with our clients to provide commercial real estate, business, estate planning, litigation, insurance law guidance to grow your business and protect your assets. So, Moving on, today is distressed debt buying, and we're gonna have John Winnick come on, but I just wanna mention a few things about this industry because it is a multi-billion dollar industry. The FTC did a study on this, the structure and practices of debt, of the debt buying industry. This was put out in 2013. It's available on the Federal Trade Commission's website, and it is all about just incredible information about what distressed debt buying is, how big it is, uh, the process of it. And it was founded upon a three-year um, review of a, of a number of, mil- of consumer accounts. But they found over a three-year period, there's $143 billion worth, worth of debt bought and sold over this three-year period that was uh, sold for approximately 6.5 billion. So what they're finding is that debt is sold on average for four cents on the dollar. Now, we should explain what this industry is. So banks have debt and, or they carry debt on their books or there's credit card transactions that where different users owe the credit card company money. There's all sorts of debt that's out there. And what you'll find out and what you realize is that debt is bought and sold. So sometimes if a bank holds a million dollar loan against a parcel of real estate, that bank might decide for various reasons to sell that debt and to sell that loan uh, to a third party purchaser. And that's usually a company that uh, is involved in, in the debt buying industry, but it can be to uh, any number of purchasers. But what you're doing when you buy debt or sell debt is that you're buying really a lawsuit. So there's a couple different debt that can be sold and one is secured and there's unsecured debt. So a credit card, so it's possible to go to a credit card company and uh, to buy 
a thousand consumer accounts, which are outstanding receivables, and then try to collect on those judgments or those uh, outstanding receivables. Sometimes they've been reduced to judgment, sometimes they haven't. And then separately, you could also buy distressed debt. And we saw this a lot from 2008 to 2000, let's call it 13, uh, during the downturn when secured debt was being sold. So banks and lending companies that had debt, which was a um, in the form of a promissory note, which is attached to a mortgage, which is secured on real property that they would sell. Now, that's different than just a general unsecured debt because you have an asset there, which may or may not be equivalent to the value of the debt, that you can proceed against. You can try to utilize that asset, that collateral, uh, to satisfy the loan that's due you. What you'll find is that you can either purchase debt that has not yet been reduced to judgment. And when I say that, there's really two different components to lawsuits. There's the lawsuit that most people think about, which is the lawsuit where you're seeking the court to say, yes, you are owed this money, or no, you're not owed this money, in whatever various term that is. And there's secondly, once you get that, once you get the judgment where the court said, yes, you are entitled to X amount of dollars. There's the collection lawsuit, which is because now you have a piece of paper that says you're awarded it, but the question is how do you enforce that judgment? How do you go after it? So when you're buying debt, you're really buying a lawsuit. And so you have to factor in legal costs because if it's if it's unsecured debt, I'm sorry, if it's secured debt, meaning it's debt that's secured by, in most instances, real estate, but it could be a car or a vehicle or some other form of collateral, um, a lot of times those are sold pre-judgment. So you're buying a foreclosure lawsuit. And so you may purchase a note and become a note purchaser and then step into the shoes of the original uh, lender and then be able to proceed with your rights under that, the original mortgage and the uh, loan documents. and. Oftentimes, you'd be able to come to a, a settlement with the borrower, or you proceed all the way to a judgment, and then you try to sell that collateral, partial satisfaction of uh, partial or full satisfaction of your of your loan. And then, secondly, you can also buy judgments, and so you can buy the right to proceed against the the debtor, where the court has declared owes the money. And I like to call this the dark magic. It's uh, it's an archaic area of the law and it's highly technical but there's all sorts of things that people can do once you have a judgment you can proceed with in illinois you usually use a citation to discover assets but you can try to uh, garnish garnish wages or it's actually called a wage deduction order where if the debtor you can just go to the employer and try to uh, garnish the wages where you take a certain percentage usually it's 15 percent of the wages and then collect against that and apply that against the judgment or you can try to proceed against other assets. You might find money in an account, or you might be able to uh, proceed against other personal property and ask the court to force a sale of some good or some article of property that has value, like an expensive Rolex watch or something to that effect in, in satisfaction of the, 
the debt that's owed. So what you'll have is you'll have companies that go out there and they buy massive amounts of debt and then they go into court and they try to enforce these judgments or their rights under whatever loan documents they are. And so that is all just set up to John Winnick of Clark Street Capital. And John is one of the most knowledgeable people in this industry and he um, has a company called Clark Street Capital that helps put buyers of of debt and sellers of debt together and uh, helps with that, facilitate that process. So he's a very interesting guy. He knows a lot about the subject and I just wanted to bring him on because I think that it's an interesting industry that you don't hear a lot about. And so we, we had the the pleasure um, and of having the opportunity of having someone who works in this industry come on to tell us all about it, and I got the opportunity to ask him questions about it. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it inter- interesting. Real Estate for Breakfast, coming up next. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, and I'm here today with John Winnick, who is the CEO of Clark Street Capital. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Phil. Look forward to it. So we're having John on to talk about the distressed debt industry and um, what Clark Street Capital does and all about it. The distressed debt industry is a huge market uh, where institutions are buying and selling loans and debt that uh, is available on, on this market, but not that many people know much about it. It's not talked about as much as some of the other markets that we have. So we thought we'd have an expert like John come on to uh, tell us a little bit about the industry and how it works, and then we'll we'll go different directions from there. So, John, do you want to just start by talking about Clark Street Capital, and then we can get into it? Sure. So um, I had a crazy idea to start a company in October 2008. And, Interesting timing. You know, live live to live to tell the story. Um, by prior background, I, I spent um, the majority of my career in the business of buying and selling loans. I created the loan sale group at GE Capital. We never sold real estate loans before, and I was at Zions out of Salt Lake City, buying loans from from banks throughout the Midwest. Um, started Clark Street Capital originally to invest in the distressed debt space ourselves. There was always going to be an advisory component to the business, um, but um, trying to raise money in uh, between October two thousand eight and you know March April the next year um, was about the most impossible thing I've ever tried to do, and um, so you know our initial business plan didn't really get off the ground. Actually, would have succeeded wildly. Uh, the problem at that time was there were great opportunities to make great returns, but you couldn't raise any money to do it. Uh, one of my right. good friends actually closed his fund, I'm gonna say September 08, and invested all their capital by December 2008 in predominantly Arizona, Phoenix area, commercial land. Um, paid maybe 19, 20 cents for a pretty substantial portfolio from M&I. And that was it. <laughs> and they did end up doing very well. But, um, you know, the opportunities at that time were plentiful, but it was hard to raise capital. So beginning in 2009, um, we built out a very successful business helping um, banks predominantly, but more lately private equity firms as well, 
with the uh, value and management and sale of complex loan portfolios. Um, our primary business today is selling loans, valuing loans, and some correspondent lending programs. Uh, prior to that, when the banks were in more trouble, we had done other things like managing portfolios for banks under loss share, doing global reviews of banks management teams. So we kind of did, we were more broad based uh, three or four years ago. Uh, having said that, we're doing better now uh, being predominantly loan sales. Uh, so that's our business uh, based in Chicago, uh, but we're really nationwide. Uh, we probably sold assets in 47, 48 states. And it's a very fun business because every day we're working on something very different. You know, um, we're selling good loans at premiums north of par, 102, 104, 105 in some cases, um, to what we call purgatory loans, which are loans that are not good enough to be refinanced, but also not in default. Uh, and then your non-performing charge-offs. So, I mean, the, the, the debt space, the loan sales space is, is quite broad and involves, you know, a, a pretty disparate array of actors. So, a bank has that on their books. And uh, what would be the impetus for them to come to you to sell the loan? So, let's say a bank has a loan of a million dollars, just sure. to use a flat number. and. They're, they have it on their books. Is these all non-performing loans? I'm assuming there's a range because you said that some are selling over par. Um, well, so, so banks banks sell loans for lots of different reasons. I mean, let me just give you sort of an overview of the loan sale industry. Um, what's funny about our space is actually a couple of years ago, I served as an expert witness in one of the only disputes over a loan sale that actually went to trial. And that's a I was great asked, business if you can get into the expert witness. Yeah, space. It, it, we've it went very well. I enjoyed being deposed. I enjoyed playing a lawyer for uh, for a day or two. Um, but in researching it, they asked me to give an overview of the loan industry, loan sale industry. And at the time, there wasn't even a Wikipedia page, and that was like three years ago. Well, we got a Wikipedia page now, which is very exciting, and it's two whole lines. Um, and if you look at Wikipedia, there is probably four pages on episode five of the third season of Family Ties. And there's right. probably a page for every single character on The Simpsons. So, you know, this is this very interesting space, which is 100 billion plus, that is operates very much under the radar. All banks sell loans, um, practically all. Um, first off, virtually every residential mortgage originated um, is not held by the original lender to term. Um, right. It's 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 originated and it's sold to an agency. It's converted into uh, non-agency MBS. Um, it's sold to other banks. I mean, the the loan sales space is vast, and it really includes um, you know everything from what I call sort of the friendly loan sale world, where it's typically a par or premium deal, to the uh, quasi distress or distress world. So, um, you know, getting back to your original point, um, why would a bank sell a million dollar loan? I mean, banks sell loans for so many different reasons. Um, one, they need liquidity. Um, right now, loan demand for a lot of banks is strong. The uh, Dodd-Frank did require banks to hold more liquidity. Um, there are some rules coming down in 2018 
which will force banks to reserve more capital if a loan becomes non-performing. Um, there are potentially gains on sale in selling loans. Um, there's a possible improvement in a bank's capital ratios. There's a whole sorts of reasons why somebody would sell a loan. And a lot of cases, um, they also feel that they can do better selling the loan to a non-financial institution in the event of a distressed loan than they can do managing it themselves. Sure. Uh, and so there, and, and there are things that banks really cannot do that a private entrepreneurial firm can do. And in a lot of cases, you know, I mean, perfect example, million dollar loan, uh, what do you think it costs you to appraise the property every year and to have a full-time workout person? I mean, so, you know, the cost when these loans are in the banking system can be quite high. Sure, so kind of backing up a bit, because I wanted to ask you, so in 2008, when you, when the financial crisis happened, did you just um, see a huge opportunity for distressed debt that was available at very cheap rates or something that you could turn around? Like your your friend in Arizona, when they're buying it at 19 cents on a dollar. So were they, they were going, the banks had distressed debt, non-performing loans, and they're buying it for 19 cents on the dollar. Were they then taking those loans, foreclosing on the property, and then taking those properties to sale? Sure. Um, well, let me, it's really two questions. Let me start with the first one. Um, the, certainly I had some foresight that there were problems in commercial and residential real estate and there was going to be some credit problems. I'd also worked for institutions that were always growing and I really had no interest in being a caretaker for a super regional bank. Um, it just wasn't going to be a very fun job. Right. So, I mean, I certainly saw an opportunity. What I did not envision was that um, it would get so bad. The problem was things got so bad that it became very difficult for the banks to transact. And, um, you know, had the, uh, had the regulators forced the banks to get rid of all their assets, they would have, a lot of banks would have been insolvent. So, you know, there was a desire for many banks to get rid of assets during that time, but the, you know, the capital hit um, was too much. So, you know, the, the regulators had to walk a, a balancing act. And, you know, TARP originally was supposed to be a vehicle not to inject capital into the banks, but as a way to take the troubled assets, the troubled asset relief program, off the bank's balance sheets. And that would allow the banks to, to, you know, to focus on lending. Um, what they found out was that was very difficult to do, and it was hard to do that um, in an equitable way. So they decided to just invest it directly into the banks. And as I said earlier, um, in my humble opinion, TARP was the greatest bipartisan achievement in Washington in my lifetime. Um, I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again, but you had an effort by two administrations of opposite parties that essentially worked together to save the banking system from potential collapse. And it was very effective um, and worked. And you know, the unintended consequence of, of that was, you know, the public developed a very negative opinion of banks and Wall Street. Um, some deserved, some undeserved. 
Um, the second part of your question was was the second part of your question? So I was going to uh, apologize for the sirens going off. Right, <laughs> that must be something really interesting happening down downstairs. But um, the second part of the question is, I was just going to ask about Arizona, your friend, um, and the opportunities. It's you're right. There were two different questions. One was what happened in 2008. The other one is actually a wildly different question. So um, it's really more about the structure as a buyer of uh, what you're looking to do when you buy distressed debt. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it depends. I mean, I think, I mean, to, to, to really project what's going to happen with every single credit, and obviously it's going to depend also on the type of portfolio that you purchase. I mean, someone who is buying a $40 million, you know, special service loan um, on a office building in Chicago, it, that's a much different trade than someone buying forty million in eighty, you know, small balance commercial loans. So I mean, obviously, each portfolio is different. Um, you know, to put it real simply, if it's a distressed transaction, the purchaser is going to evaluate the collateral. So what you know, what is this really worth? Right. Um, you know, we'll look at the appraisal, we'll look at other, their other systems, and they'll have their own opinion of what real value is. Then they'll say, well, what's my outcome here? Um, am I going to foreclose, take title of the property, and sell it? Um, can I negotiate with the borrower and get a discounted payoff? And, or maybe he can pay me off at par. You know, maybe it's a matter of just, you know, letting the borrower breathe and get his financials or her financials back together so they can be refinanced by a bank. Um, so basically the purchaser is going to, you know, classify each loan into one of various buckets. What's my likely outcome? What is my collateral worth? And what's my required return for that? And to just give you this sort of range, um, a performing loan that's got some unfavorable characteristics Maybe it's a 25-year term, and you know the market today is doing much shorter. Um, you know, really, it's a bankable deal. It's a good credit. They're going to work with the borrower, maybe give them a payoff at 90, 95 cents, and you know that investor is probably satisfied um, with a high single-digit return. On the flip side, um, let's give you the most extreme bad example. Um, it's a non-performing loan on a um, half-built golf course community um, in an exurban area um, that's you know been through bankruptcy I mean that that situation right you're gonna assume you're gonna own the property you're gonna assume that you're gonna have to clear all the issues there you're gonna assume that you're gonna have to finish the curbside improvements and begin selling lots again. So obviously that return would probably be well north of double digits, probably in the low mid twenties. So it's, that's essentially what they'll do on a, on a portfolio basis. They'll sort of segregate it and say, okay, well these loans, I think I can do this. And they're not right. I mean, all the time. I mean, they obviously yeah. are making their, their best guess. Um, you know, as a general rule, it's sometimes just like a bad marriage. Sometimes you just need to change the cast of characters. I mean, there's a lot of times where yeah. 
you know, the relationship between the bank and the borrower is just toxic, can't be fixed, they don't trust each other, and somebody new comes to the equation and they can work out a deal. Um, the non-banks have a lot more flexibility in what they can do. They could do a JV, they could take, they're not worried about taking the collateral back. The banks are more constrained in what their options are. Um, you know, for one thing, a discounted payoff is a terrible idea for a bank to do in general because it sets a very bad precedent. Like if right. you start offering your customers 95 cents, well, the word's gonna get out pretty quickly and then everyone's gonna want that deal. Not as much of an issue for a private equity firm that you know isn't a lender in the market. Right, right. It kind of reminds me of um, sometimes sports team just needs a new coach. You can have a very good coach sure. comes in, like Jim Harbaugh, get everyone riled up, get everyone going. But you know, after four or five years of someone barking at you, uh, the the players stop listening, and so just need a new new cast of characters, like you said. Um, I was gonna ask just about buyers in general. What sort of groups do you see? Are these um, funds that are set up to buy distressed debts? Do you see private investors that are just people or small groups of people that have an appetite for buying these loans and uh, working through these? Or are these companies that are set up to do yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, it's a wide variety. I mean, they tend to be pretty under the radar. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's uh, most of these firms kind of skew publicity. Um, and, you know, could have, I mean, hundreds of billions of assets under management and nobody knows who they are. I mean, they, they just tend to, you know, be fairly low key for, for obvious reasons. Um, it depends. I mean, you know, this space, I mean, you got entrepreneurial men and women that um, are buying some debt in their own names to, you know, large uh, hedge funds and private equity firms. But what I have seen the last couple years is there's sort of a back to basics in our space. Um, the professional loan buying community, as I call them, mm-hmm. has been, you know, has sort of been more active again. Um, you know, a lot of what happened in 2009 to 2012 was just one big trade and the portfolio sizes were very large. So they attracted the attention of the largest private equity firms. You know, I've talked to some of my friends at you know places like um, Rialto or um, Lone Star, and they really haven't bought very much the last couple of years. And part of that is simply, you know, the needle problem. You know, they they, they need to put at least fifty million dollars out for it to, to be worth it. Right. Um, so some of the very large firms that bought a lot. Um, have had difficulty the last couple of years because there's not as many large transactions. And the space we tend to play in, you know, they tend to be five to $50 million deals. And that's a great space because, um, you know, you, you have a pretty broad array of participants. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to ask you just about the market in general because um, when I, I first got exposed to distressed debt in the 2008 to 2012, 13 time period. So a lot of property managers uh, became receivers just to survive the downturn. Mm -hmm. And so you had these companies that were managing previously um, properties that were cash flow positive, good flowing properties. And then during the downturn, they started to work with banks a little bit more, get appointed as receivers for these properties because there's just such a massive amount of foreclosures going on. And that has since 
tapered off, I would say, quite substantially. If you just look at the numbers of foreclosures here in Cook County, there were, um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but there was exponentially more from 2009 to 13, and you couldn't even get a motion on the docket within two to three weeks. They were two to three months out on just a routine motion just to get in front of a judge. Um, so I, I've just been... I've been wondering, is there less debt available for sale, or is that uh, not the debt is still out there? There's different types of deals. Sure. Or is the volume but, but, but there's a natural, um, I mean, we're always making more bad loans, right? I mean, there's just, yeah. it's, there's, or loans that are not so good, or, or loans that are good that someone wants to sell. I mean, there's just a natural flow of um, problem credits. I mean, lending is an inexact science. Uh, look, a bank can can buy securities and make uh, one and a half, two percent. You know, buying treasuries today, a couple percent, or they can make a loan at five percent. So they're certainly being paid to take on that risk. Um, you know, hopefully, if it doesn't work out, they don't lose any money. Sometimes they do. Um, you know, the the losses in on car loans, for example, or probably 50 60 percent um you know real estate loans got to the point where you know the, the banks were losing 40 50 percent you know probably right now it's probably 80 to off to par at this point so um yeah i mean there's just there's always a natural i mean things stuff happens i mean tenants leave i mean look what's going on i read today that macy's sales have dropped another four and a half percent um you know, there's there's obviously a problem in the retail space, and mm-hmm. and you got all these malls. We actually sold a loan on a former vacant mall. I mean, there's just you know, there's a lot of there's always distress, there's always problems, there's always bankruptcies, and this always tends to happen. You know, what happened in 2009 was an unnatural spike that probably happens once every you know 50 or so years, and things have just sort of gone back to normal. Um, what what did happen is, you know, I know pretend and extend is kind of gets a bad word, but in a lot of cases, pretending and extending was good for the bondholders and the fiduciaries involved. So, you Can know, you just rather explain than explain that phrase. Yeah. So, OK, you have a loan coming due in 2010. Um, the collateral is worth. $10 million, the debt's $12 million. You know, if they're paying, or they were paying till maturity, if you foreclose, the losses will probably be $3 million. Um, so rather than take that projected $3 million loss, they went to that, you know, retail strip owner and said, all right, we'll give you another five years or renew the loan, even though we weren't supposed to. Um, and, you know, we'll keep your rate what it is right now. You know, we'll throw in another six months of interest only so you can, you know, pay your realtor commissions and leasing commissions and get the property occupied. So it was just a, you know, reasonable, sensible strategy right. to keep uh, these properties and borrowers afloat rather than flood the market with, um, bad assets and caused a it caused a, a more systemic problem. Um, so I don't. It wasn't an irrational thing, but what happened was, you know, a lot of assets didn't really leave the system 
they were simply postponed. Um, so, you know, fast forward to today, um, that loan is now coming due again. And well, you know, the rates now have gone up about 100 basis points. So um, if we amortize that new loan over 20 years, maybe the debt service coverage is 0.9. And oh shoot, they had, um, you know, a, uh, a tenant that went bankrupt. So maybe their debt service is now 0.7. So yeah, I mean, you, you certainly um, have uh, assets that, you know, really never were resolved. They were just renewed um, under favorable terms, hoping that when they came up again, things would be better. And I would say by and large, it worked. I mean, it, it, it wasn't, you know, it certainly frustrated a lot of people in the space, but clearly um, mass liquidation of, you know, CMBS loans and real estate loans in 2010 would have resulted in far greater losses than was done so yeah certainly some assets were liquidated but you know the 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 near miss credits or the purgatory credits i like to call them you know those were given more breathing room sure i actually saw a couple of properties that that I, that worked on where they were in foreclosure in 2011 2012 and um the property turned around everyone kind of thought that you saw it actually more tenants come in receivers getting spaces leased up and uh, the property turned around and then they made a deal with the bank and went and emerged from bankruptcy or from foreclosure successful. So sometimes that. that I mean, what's hot right now in like in the distress space, obviously energy, although the banks were very quick to write down their energy books. So you still have some lingering problems in the energy sector. Um, we haven't seen a big spike at defaults yet, but the amount of worry in the multifamily space is very concerning. Um, really, I, I thought you were going to say retail for sure. Yeah, but you didn't. You didn't have much increase in retail supply, um, but you know, certainly, but certainly some retail, um, and also I would say the hot areas. I'm going to exclude um, student loans because those loans will never really be sold. But um, you know, the hot areas right now are auto loans, distressed auto loans. Um, I think apartments are around the corner. Um, it may have read my newsletter today. Um, a lot of developers were selling, selling this bullshit that um, you know, millennials uh, don't want to own their own home and they're going to ditch their right. cars and live in the cities and not have kids and not get married. And um, there's increasingly evidence that Millennials are really driving the starter home market, and there's been a big increase in first-time homeowners. Um, so we've built all these apartments that are all Class A, that are all nice and expensive in these major cities, and you know there's very few condos for sale. So you have this imbalance right, right now of Chicago is 23 cranes every 22 or 23 residential cranes every single one is a rental property. Every, um, every uh, uh, residential property is a rental property. And what you'll have is you'll have a 300 unit apartment building and next door a 20 unit condominium project. So the financing yeah. became so easy for multifamily, so difficult for single family home developments or condominiums 
that we've created a massive imbalance and we've way overestimated the size of the renting population and just assumed that these hipster youngsters, you know, are always going to want to be renters. And I've been a skeptic of that argument for a very long time. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you see real stress. I mean, the, the banks are feeling it. The regulators have been warning banks about multifamily for some time. Um, they've been talking down, the Fed in particular has been talking down the space. So, you know, we'll see if there's a wave of defaults, but certainly um, there's evidence that credit in that space is getting a lot more difficult pretty fast. So, you know, we'll certainly see how that plays out. That is interesting. Um, turns out everyone gets older and people have kids and people want to own their own homes. So, um, and then, you know, look, I mean, I'm, not I'm an urbanist, I, mean, I live yeah, in the city, no. I love cities. But what people are neglecting to notice is you can be, you can live urban now and be in Naperville. I was in Naperville two days ago, and a lot of people in Naperville live a more downtown lifestyle than they live in the city limits of Chicago. So when you have the urbanization that's going on in the U.S. is not necessarily happening in downtowns. Certainly some of that is happening. But, you know, if you look at what's, what the home builders are building right now, they're not building McMansions. They're building smaller homes. The millennials are, are, are attracted to smaller homes with great outdoor spaces and so on. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely seeing um, uh, a shift in what perceptions might have been four or five years ago. Well, uh, tell us about the retail market. Because uh, I'm interested in this. I've seen a couple recently, sure. you know, HH Greg and Payless. And um, there's been some doom and gloom reports coming out sort of my thinking on it is that uh, in a bankruptcy scenario with Chapter 11, debtors have 270 days to assume or reject leases. So sure. that's a simplification. You get 120 days you automatically, and then you get a 90-day extension, which is pretty much routinely granted. So, sorry, yeah, uh, 210 days, not 270. So um, my thinking is that you have a lot of debtors that are trying to wait until they get within the holiday season range because what they can do is they can go up into bankruptcy, try to reorganize in the fall, try to get some financing, shed some of their non-performing stores. Sure. And if things go really south, then they can just liquidate all of their inventory during the holiday season, close up shop in early January or February and move on. And so I'm thinking just because of the way that some of the retail space is going. Not all, there's a lot of very successful retailers that are uh, bucking the trends and doing new things. And you know that's, that's a whole other discussion. But I think that once we get within that 210 day window a little bit more solidly, um, that we might see a few more retail bankruptcies, which um, is gonna well, cause some yeah. stress on the loans. Yeah, I mean, re you know, retail's funny because um, nobody cares if they're in an office building and they're the only tenant there. In fact, it's actually a great thing. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you would love- Right, no competition for had, the bathrooms. Well, right, and you had all the parking spaces you want. Um, so, you know, if if one of the tenants of the building filed bankruptcy and left, you'd shrug your shoulders and wouldn't think much of it. Um, but what you have in retail is this cascading effect where, um, you know, Macy's pulls out or, or doesn't renew their lease if you lose an anchor tenant, you're never going to find another one just like it. I mean, almost never. I mean, you're not going to find Nordstrom that's going to step into that space 
or Sears that's going to step into that space. So, you know, what's happening in these malls is they lose that anchor. And, you know, a lot of the leases have co-tenancy clauses. So if Macy's isn't here, well, I, can, I don't have to be here. So, you know, you have this sort of cascade of distress that can negatively impact a, a mall or, or a shopping center. And then once you got, you know, f a critical number of vacancy, um, nobody wants to rent there anymore. You know, in places like New York City, Manhattan, vacancy is a good thing because it means you can probably get higher rents. But, um, you know, most, most places, you know, you, you're, you're, it's very hard to replace an anchor. You know, very often you're seeing like community colleges and, you know, civic groups take over vacant mall space. Um, I sold a loan on a distressed mall in Kentucky and the old Dillard's became university space. So, I mean, that's sort of the problem is you lose the anchor and who you're going to replace it with is not going to be as good. Um, and, you know, you, it's hard for me to see which retailers are really adding stores right now. I mean, you have a lot that are shedding stores. Going back to banks, um, Wells Fargo announced they're shedding 2,500 branches. Um, I would argue that a third of all bank branches need to go. So you have a lot of retailers who need less space or are not going to be viable. And who's going to fill, you know, there's only so many Sonic Burgers and McDonald's and, and you know, quick casual restaurants you can put in. So now that's, that's a concern is, um, you know, you have some very sick retailers and uh, it's hard to see where the um, other retails will sort of step up. Other retailers will step up. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cause of concern. Um, certainly Amazon's market share grows and grows, but last time I checked, I think Amazon's only 8% of the retail market. So, I mean, Walmart's doing just fine. Target's doing just right. fine. Um, you know, the thing about retail is it's there and you see it every day. So it's, it's hard to envision that we're going to move to a post-retail society. Yeah. I mean, there's so much about what makes a city great, uh, a neighborhood great by, you know, the, the retail that's there, the coffee shop, the, you know, the used bookstore, you know, that's all sort of what makes, you know, a community work. So um, I think retail is changing. It's going to be a tough change, but I mean, I don't think the segments, I mean, it's, it's going to change. I mean, it's, it's going to be, you know, with way too many clothing stores, for example. I mean, the clothing retailers, a lot of them are toast. Um, so. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's going to change, but there are a lot of retail that is uh, destination retail or, you know, home goods is very good. People like the treasure hunt experience. Retailers that provide experience, but experience or a destination are doing very well. Grocery stores are doing well. Um, but... Some of the old clothing stores, I was at a BizNow event, and one of the speakers was saying, he's like, you can walk into the Gap right now, and you can buy the same shirt that you bought 20 years ago. He's like, I don't mean a different version of the same shirt. I mean the exact same yeah. shirt. Uh, same color, same cut, everything like that. So I, I don't think he was picking on the Gap, but I think there are plenty of retailers that fall into that category. Um, I want to switch to uh, just the the market itself so you have these buyers we've talked about the different types of, of buyers how do they find out what is for sale um well <laughs> that's one thing that's also unique about the space is 
um, you know, people tend to sell assets quietly or moderately quietly. I mean, one thing that we're known for is we never talk about our clients and it served us very well. I mean, we never, I see our competitors, they have fifth third third quarter loan sale. You would never do that because, right. you know, because it's a general rule. Sellers, you know, they, they don't want the word getting out that they're selling. Um, they'd rather keep it sort of low key. Um, you know, um, if it's a meaningful portfolio size, they're most likely going to hire an advisor. Um, I feel we're the best in the industry. We're being hired by the leading firms in the industry who buy from everybody else and they think we do the best job. But, you know, there's other people out there that do a very capable job and we certainly admire uh, many of our competitors. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's um, pretty regular sales of portfolios. Um, you know, direct deals happen, but they're more likely to happen on a one-off basis. Um, you know, if it's a particular property that you've been eyeing that's in bankruptcy, you know, most likely there might be an opportunity there on a, on a one-off basis. Um, it's unusual for someone to sell a meaningful commercial portfolio without kind of broadly marketing it. And, you know, that's part of our job is to prove to the seller that we found the market. And it's hard to do that without running a process, without saying we got X number of CAs and X number of bids, you know, that validate our initial pricing. Um, you know, a typical loan sale process for us is, you know, three to four weeks to assemble the list of assets, get the assets ready for sale, um, and then begin the marketing process, you know, three, four weeks till the initial bids. And then, you know, we decided, we decide what to do next. Sometimes we negotiate with one or two bidders. Other cases we go to a best and final, and then we go to closing. Um, you know, the loan sale process is a very sophisticated process. Uh, everybody involved is purported to be sophisticated. Um, it's a buyer beware business. Um, you're not getting many reps and warranties. They're pretty much limited to, we own the loan, we have the right to sell the loan, we haven't modified the loan, except as described here, we're repping the interest rate, the balance, but you know it's pretty limited in what you actually get. Now, when you're selling loans for a premium, um, certainly, yeah, there are a lot more reps and warranties, but you know in the distressed world, they're pretty limited. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a process. Um, you know, because of technology and easy availability of information, um, you know, you're expected to be able to do your due diligence. You can do that remotely. Most buyers will, 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 will drive the properties, um, go there, you know, anonymously and take a look at it. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a really interesting process, um, and a hell of a lot of fun. And, um, you know, the permutations can be very complicated. I mean, we can, we've sold 58 loans to, you know, from four different servicers to five different parties. I mean, it can get, it can get pretty uh, complicated. So that's really, if you're interested in buying the loans, it's really just try to find a third party servicer like you guys, like Clark Street Capital well, that is marketing those. Yeah. That, um, that, unless yeah, it's so, I mean, single. DebtX, Mission Capital, um, HFF, our firm, uh, First Financial Network, um, CBRE does some. I mean, there are 
half a dozen to a dozen firms that do loan sales, um, less that just do loan sales. And, um, you know, like I said, there are banks that will do it directly. But what I've found is even the people that buy a lot, you know, find buying direct. While it's very appealing to them, it's very difficult because very often the banks aren't really serious about selling. Right. When they hire an advisor, they're serious. Um, it sounds great in theory. Well, I can work a deal directly with the bank, but you're not really working with one person at the bank. That person's got a boss and a board of directors, and you know there's there's an awful lot of buy-in that happens when you run a process. I mean, certainly, yeah, we do have situations where um, our offering subject to reserve price. The market changes. The assets change negatively. We don't get the reserve price then there may not be a transaction as large as anticipated. But, you know, that's certainly um, part of it. But, you know, for the most part, at least in our deals, we're probably executing on 75, 85% of what we market. Um, some in the industry are better, some are worse. That's always one of those things where you don't want to be too high or too yeah, low. Yeah, right. Because um, you're selling it too cheap. Yeah, well, you, 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 selling more. Yeah, you, you want to... <laughs> You know, if you, if you had no failure rate, you weren't trying hard enough, and your failure rate is too high, you're not executing well enough. So it's one of those things you always try to balance out. But, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times it can be a reverse inquiry basis, right? I mean, you know, you, you're really interested in a particular property. You find out it's in bankruptcy. You find out who the lender is. Sure. You know, you find, uh, you see who's on the board of the bank. You find the attorney that represents the bank. And you develop a relationship. Um, I would say for portfolios, it's very hard to do that directly. Um, you know, for one-off assets, there certainly are some opportunities. Sure. So, what what is the cheapest kind of debt? What what sells at the the biggest discount? Is it like in terms of uh, commercial property, residential property, auto? Debt, yeah, I mean, I debt. would say, I mean, it's that's pretty easy. It's uh, consumer charge-offs, yeah. or or commercial charge-offs, which are essentially consumer charge-offs. You know, for example, you have judgments on a real estate developer on property you've already foreclosed out, and you might have a deficiency of a couple million dollars. You might be able to sell that debt for two cents, five cents, ten cents of the dollar. So. I mean, those are the toughest loans because you have no collateral and no performance. So, you know, it's just like slinging mud against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you get you get 100% like every once in a while you, you get 100%, you know, yeah. pay, debt, pay, you know, 100%. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that's probably the toughest uh, would be the would be charge off consumer and commercial debt. And business debt, or you know, you might have CNI charged off CNI loans too, where you're pursuing an entity that's essentially insolvent. So I was going to ask you about um, the due diligence portion, but I think that you've already addressed that a little bit. Is basically you're going to have to do all your legwork uh, because you're not going to get much information. Or you might get information. You're going to get information. I mean, essentially what the industry is saying to you is we're going to give you everything we know about this credit. We're going to give you the files. We're not going to give you all the files. We're not going to give you our private correspondence and internal write-ups. I mean, 
you know, sometimes we give it to people, some we don't. It really depends on the seller. But for the most part, we're going to give you the vast majority of the available information. Um, you're going to have plenty of time or sufficient time to review that information. You'll be able to do that from the comfort of your office or home. Um, you know, you'll be able to use whatever valuation tools you have, CoStar, the local broker you know on the market, and um, you'll have access to things like title policies. Uh, the reality is when you're buying a loan, you're stepping into the shoes of the original lender. So, you know, people always say, wow, you know, there's some title issues on the property. And I say, well, that's not our problem. You know, we have a title policy and, you know, our mortgage is superior in any other liens and it's somebody else's problem, not ours. So, I mean, you're, you're stepping in the shoes of somebody and look, I mean, the, the people who are buying this stuff um, are being paid for the risk of the unknown. And so long as you've done that, um, you just have to accept that limited reps and warranties are part of the deal. A real estate deal is much different. I mean, I'm actually closing next week on a real estate deal. Cannot get over why it takes two months. I mean, two months. I mean, I, I bought and sold $100 million portfolio in the same time it, it takes to close on one stupid condo. Um, you know, but on a real estate deal, there's a, a uh, purchase and sale agreement. There's, you know, financing contingency and inspection contingency and due diligence contingency. And, you know, if you have one contingency, there's, there's a massive difference between no contingencies and one contingency and not much between one and five. Right. So, you know, that world is, you know, you got a contract, but maybe you don't, maybe you do. And um, hopefully it'll close and the buyer will raise their money, whatever else they need to do. And there could be a renegotiation. And, you know, that process uh, takes, you know, two months. Um, you're going to pay everyone's property to bring the property taxes current. Um, you know, you're going to have new financing. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot going on with the loan sale. Um, you could trade far more assets in a much shorter period of time. And, you know, it's quite quick and it's in, it's like, hey, you know, for one thing, like I would almost never advise my client to get an LOI, have a, have a buyer sign an LOI. I'd say, here's the sale agreement. Go do your due diligence. When you're ready to transact, come back to us. I mean, that's typically how we would do it. So it's, it's just a different world. I mean, it's not, you know, you're not going <laughs> to tie up a $30 million portfolio from a bank for three months where you run out and try to raise money and then try to take the thing down. I mean, that's that's what tends to happen in real estate deals. doesn't happen in the loan sale business very often. Right. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, but while you're here and just because you're just talking about your condo purchase, can we talk about the square footage issue going on? Yeah. I, the I, MLS. Yeah, I, I thought this was kind of funny. Um, you know, um, being somebody who, I guess I'm an expert in the uh, banking, real estate, and, and lending space. Um, but, uh, you know, found a property I liked and liked the price per square foot. And actually, in my opinion, you know, really for all real estate, you know, location is the most important thing, right? Second thing is, well, how much space do you have? And third, well, what's the quality of that space? And four, if it's like a, a, a condo or something, well, tell me about the quality of the building. You know, is it, do we have a pool? Do we have a doorman? And so on. So square footage is pretty fundamental 
to yes. real estate yes. and value. Um, what's curious is with single-family homes, um, square footage is rarely disputed. Uh, typically, the counties or cities have that information available, and we don't sit there and argue about square footage. Um, but um, I got my appraisals back, and the property's appraised. The property appraised at, but the appraisal was 1,950 square feet. So I'm like, well, where do my where do my 250 square feet go? And the seller had hired a firm who shall remain nameless that does virtual tours, and they actually gave me the breakdown of square footage. So I put it on my little Excel spreadsheet, and I compared room to room, and ground floor matched up fine, upstairs matched up fine, and the only difference was. 250 square feet of phantom space basically they basically counted the air adjacent to the loft space <laughs> as improved square feet and of course the other side's trying to tell me they probably don't know that i'm an industry expert but they're like well you know square footage is a very subjective thing and appraisers they all do it differently no they don't um, there is a very specific guideline for square footage it is published by Fannie. It is published by Freddie. It does not include basements. It does not include outdoor space. Uh, and it goes from interior wall to interior wall on condos. So the idea that square footage is this mystery right. is 100% uh, bullshit. And the uh, what's amazing to me is the real estate brokers will put square footage numbers that have no relation to reality. Yeah, Even though the current owner got an appraisal, had an independent party verify the square feet, because the appraisers all measure, and you know they just use some nonsense number. So you know I've actually convinced two attorneys now to put square footage in their real estate contracts because you know when you get last square foot, your price per square foot goes up, and you know you were essentially cheated out of a couple hundred square feet in some cases. So my suspicion is this is a widespread problem that goes on in condos everywhere. Um, the, I don't understand how the taxing authorities do it, but if they don't have, if, if, the, if the city appraisers don't have square footage, then how the hell are they measuring value from unit to unit in the building? I mean, the whole thing is very strange to me. Um, square footage in a condo should be actually easier than a single-family home you would think. because you have like-minded units right next to each other. But one thing I would just say is, you know, um, you know, buyer beware. And I suspect that, and I've talked to other appraisers, but it's a pretty consistent problem where the purported square foot footage is significantly higher than what the actual square footage. And, you know, you're potentially overpaying for something. Yeah. No, I think that there are some people out there that are very cavalier about the square footage, very overly generous about what they have, or well, they just doesn't couple, list it. Well, it's a couple hundred square feet. Imagine if you went to your closing and you said, and you go to your final walkthrough and a bathroom was missing or a bedroom was missing. I mean, you'd say, well, what the hell? What's going on here? Um, well, that's essentially if, if you, you know, the variances are big enough that, you know, if, if it's... 200 square feet less, and you've essentially lost a room. Yeah, and it's going to make a huge de deal. Uh, it's going to be a huge difference when, if you're accounted at a bigger square footage for your 
condo assessments. You might be charged more by the condo association. You might be charged more in real estate sure. taxes. I, I don't even mind. This is so widespread. Yeah. I mean, I would challenge the, the Chicago real estate community to tackle this issue head on and to provide, you know, on it. I mean, the, the, you know, the alternative is to not provide the information, which I think is stupid. Like, it's not, I mean, it's just basic math. Like, there's not, I mean, yeah. I suppose some people could round the inches up and, you know, there could be slight differences, but there shouldn't be dramatic differences in, you know, what's improved square feet. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I thought it all ended up getting work, worked out. And, and, and I will say that there was no intention here to mislead. Um, they simply relied on a firm that misrepresented it. Um, but, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I just, it, it seems like this is a widespread problem. Well, I thought that was an interesting story to bring up. But, um, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anyone wants to get in touch with you or your company from either side, what's the best way to get in touch with Clark Street Capital? Yeah, send an email, uh, J-O-N.W-I-N-I-C-K at Clark, S-T, C-L-A-R-K, S-T, capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it as well. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.